0: I realized when I was in the middle of preparing for this message that we would not be able to make it through as detailed of exposition as I wanted to do in one week, so we will only make it up to the middle of verse 2 where it says, exercising oversight. The pairings, or the three do's and don'ts as they are, we will pick up next week and conclude the exposition then, Lord willing. So I want to begin by speaking about the audience. The audience is, of course, elders. Verse 1, so I exhort the elders among you. They They are the intended audience of these exhortations. Even as Peter in the letter has addressed different groups of people, different types of persons within the community, slaves, husbands, wives, he is now addressing Elders. So, in a room where there is just one person, namely the person preaching, who is actively serving as an elder in any official capacity, why should we all listen? There are two main reasons that we should all listen to these exhortations to elders. Number one, Jesus Christ has given the charge to the church to both appoint, hold accountable, and remove, if necessary, its own elders. The problem is, if you don't know what the Bible says about what a biblical elder is or what the biblical expectations are, then you will put up with bad shepherding and you may be opposed to good shepherding. It's your job, congregation, to appoint your leaders and remove them. But if you don't know what the job description is, you can't do that very well. Very often it is the case, as we saw last week, that in the church, the people of God, over the history, thousands of years of the history of God's people in Israel and the church, that the people of God not only put up with, but even seek out unhealthy shepherding care. We have to know then what the Lord Jesus and His apostles tell us that an elder ought to be. And what he ought to do so the church will know how to spot a bad shepherd and how to encourage and exhort a weak or struggling elder and how to commend and honor a faithful elder. The second reason we should all listen to this is that God creates through his word. God's word is the means of his creation We see this in Genesis 1, we see this in the existence of the Son of God, and we see this in the way Jesus works his miracles. It is by word that our God acts. So the Lord Jesus summons elders, shepherds, pastors into existence through his words Through his words, the words of his apostles, and by the preaching of those words about them. This is how he creates. And so it is no secret or should not be by this point, but part of my aim, as I believe it is part of the Holy Spirit's aim in inspiring Peter to write these very words, to summon shepherds into existence. I want to play my part as a gear in that mechanism of God ordaining and calling out Men to serve in this capacity, to be faithful shepherds, because there is such a dire need, and I'm not talking even primarily about our church here. As we saw last week, the people of God, I believe again, are scattered among the many mountaintops and dark places, as we saw in Ezekiel 34. Do you have the heart of a shepherd? Or do you see it and want it? After reading a text like this, do you sense a stirring in your heart for these very things? Fan it into flame. That's my ask of you. And I'll do my very best to help you along the way if you're willing to accept it. And hopefully, if you see me as your pastor, you would welcome that kind of help. So who are these people? Explained why we should all listen. Who are these people? Who or what is an elder? The meaning of the word, the strict literal sense, doesn't help us that much. It just simply means older person. The metaphorical meaning, though, is what Peter is using here. Even in the early church, they recognize the office of elder an elder does not have to be the oldest person, or else Timothy would have never been a leader in the church, nor would he have been sent to the church in Ephesus to appoint elders. But <clears throat> the term is borrowed from Judaism. So in Judaism, you remember the Sanhedrin, right? The, the typical bad guys in the life of Jesus, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. If you were part of the Sanhedrin... And you were called an elder of the people, regardless of age. So the apostles pick up that term; they borrow it or abscond it from Judaism and apply it to this office within the church. And there are specific qualifications of this office. Here is a combined list for you from First Timothy three and Titus one. He must aspire to the office. He must be above reproach. He must be a one woman man. His children must be believing, submissive. He must not be arrogant or quick-timbered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. He must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, sober-minded, upright, holy and disciplined, orthodox, able to teach, rebuke. He must not be a recent convert, but well thought of by outsiders. And as D.A. Carson says, This is a remarkably unremarkable list of qualifications. The only two things on this list of qualifications that not every Christian man may have is not a recent convert and able to teach. Otherwise, the list should be something that every Christian man should want and every Christian man should aspire to be. And so it's that sense that the word elder is used when we talk about not a recent convert, right? It doesn't have to be an old person, but someone who is somewhat seasoned in the faith. We have to acknowledge that that is relative. Okay, when Paul, as we saw in Acts 14, doubles back through his missionary journey, he's appointing elders in churches where the oldest Christians who would be there would be only a few months into their faith. So it's a relative term, but there should be some time of testing so that we could say of a potential elder or a person who's serving in it, they're not recent into the faith. There's been a time of testing. So why do they exist? We discussed this last week. Todd Miles, a professor of theology from Western Seminary, says, elders, shepherds, pastors provide, protect, guide, and care. And that's a significant statement. I want you to understand this as we're unfolding this passage. It is God's wisdom that you need. It's not, not auxiliary. It's not supplemental. You need a shepherd whose name is not Jesus. Jesus, your senior pastor, will always be your senior pastor. And if he is not your pastor, then you're not of him. You're not in him. So if you're a Christian, he's your pastor. But... It is God's wisdom that you need someone else as well, or else texts like this wouldn't exist. One of the biggest gifts that God has given to you through Jesus, your senior pastor, is to give you under shepherds, junior pastors. And this is true for all ages of the church. If it were just about teaching or preaching, then with the dawn of the Internet, we would no longer need shepherds. You can find and listen to better sermons than you can get here on a Sunday morning. I promise you that. You could just read manuscripts from Spurgeon and get a better sermon. The point is this, that shepherding and the purpose of shepherding is not only or even foundationally about teaching. We'll see that in a bit. There was an older gentleman who worked for my father, um, he served as sort of a surrogate grandfather to us, and um, I'm one of eight, and so whenever we would show up to the office to you know, give something to dad at, at his workplace and, and whatever, he, he would come out and visit to us and, and just be uh, catty or, or making funny jokes about us being a massive family, and they were deserved, I guess, in a sense. But he would look at my mom and say, beat him and feed him. Beat him and feed him. <laughs> and while it is true that correction and nutrition are very, very important to parenting, those who are good parents in this room know that parenting is so much more than just nutrition and correction. And if you had a good parent, you know that this is the case. So, shepherding care is so much more than just teaching, or preaching. Teachers and preachers are not enough. That's the point. I'll quote it again, as I did last week. The helpfulness of this contrast is so amazing and so clear, so applicable. This is what Paul says to the Corinthians. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. There's any number of chumps who want to come along and teach you tell you what to do, but you don't have many fathers. So, we have seen who the audience is and who these people are. Why do they need to be exhorted? Well, next week we'll get into the three contrasts and we'll see just how many pitfalls there are of shepherds and how so many can get it wrong. But for now, let it stand for you that because there are so many pitfalls... There needs to be constant warning and exhortation. I want you to note also that he says, so I exhort the elders among you. What else could he have said? What other words might we have used if we were writing this? Maybe I exhort the elders who are over you, but he doesn't say that. This is how even the prepositions of your Bible change the subtle nuance of the meaning and how you need to pay close, close attention to what words are used and what words are not. There are some churches and some shepherds where it is very much, I exhort the elders who are over you. But Peter intentionally uses among you, alongside, with you. That carries the sense of equality. We're all only ever sheep. The only one who's not a sheep but still a lamb is the Lord Jesus, of course. So Peter then mentions his credentials. He says, I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Why does Peter cite his spiritual resume? This text, this specific section of verse one falls into a subgenre of the New Testament that I will call intense charge. Intense charge. It's not just a charge. Statements are piled on to the charge to intensify it and to make it stand out more. There are many of these through the New Testament. One that you're probably familiar with is Second Timothy four one through two. And interestingly, it's in the same vein. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teachings. Why intensify it? Why is He underscoring it? It's interesting that most of these in the subgenre of intense charge, most of them have to do with leaders' Elders, shepherds. What does that intensity tell us? Why is he piling on here? It should go without saying, but these charges, this central charge of shepherding the flock is very important. But Pastor Joshua, aren't all the commands of the Bible really important? Yes. Yes. But there are some that are of upstream, what I will call upstream importance. What I mean is this, if you get this right, it will lead to a harvest of righteousness. And if you get it wrong, it will lead to a world of hurt. That's why these charges are given with such intensity. Preaching the word, shepherding the flock, and so many others related to leaders. Upstream importance. So understand this, elders shepherding the flock of God, the way that Peter commands here will lead to a harvest of righteousness, and it has led to a world of hurt and ruin. For shepherds, pastors, elders not following his command here, and it's very common and frequent. Peter talks about his equality and superiority in intensifying his charge here. To underscore his equality, he says, a fellow elder. At the beginning of 2 Peter, he says, he's writing to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing. So Peter is underscoring, hey, I'm right here with you. And he says another statement to underscore the equality, a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. That harkens back to chapter 1 when he says that this glory of the coming day of Jesus is going to bring glory and honor for all those who persevere in faith. So what Peter is saying, he's communicating solidarity with these other elders. We might even say that Peter could have said something like, the first elder, as Jesus specifically commissions him, feed my sheep. But he doesn't say that. He's not a pope. He's identifying with all those other elders out there, regardless of age or influence. We might say it this way. I can exhort you because I'm right there with you in the trenches, and my hope is the same as yours. But he also underscores some superiority. There's one thing he says in here, and you can see it, that signals his superiority he adds a layer of obligation to listen to what he says. He says, a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Why would he do that? Why would he remind all his listeners? I think it carries this flavor. You better listen to this. Or maybe, remember, this carries the weight of the Lord Jesus. I walked with Him. Now this is said to elders who had never met him in churches where he had never been. And he wants them to obey what he is about to say. So he needs to remind them, hey, I was an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ. So you need to shepherd in accordance with what I'm about to say. So understand, pastors today are junior indeed. They're under the authority, even under the first under-shepherds. We have an example upon example to follow. We are not masters of our own ministry, free to minister in the way that we feel gifted or feel called. The definitive example of Jesus and His apostles is both sufficient and authoritative. And so, before we move on, I just want to give a few applications for this. In the view of Peter's authority to tell all pastors everywhere throughout all time exactly what to do. Many ministers have wasted much time, much of the time that they've had in ministry, by trying to be cute and innovative. Do you remember the issue with the Athenians when Paul went to Athens? Athens? They were always fascinated with hearing or talking about something new. And the Athenian heresy has no place in the church. It has no place in pastoral ministry. Let's think and talk about something new. As God says through the prophet Jeremiah, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths. Where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. It's not that I'm trying to sound old when I preach or when I talk about things, but the best teachers for how to do this, what a biblical elder is exhorted to do, died a long time ago. And the current people, most of them, who are writing or maybe even teaching in seminaries are trying to be cute and innovative, and Athenian. Look, can we just admit that the cool, hip pastor really hasn't worked out? Hasn't really done anyone any good? Let's just get rid of all that. We're not that funny or suave anyway. Neither Jesus nor John the Baptist were very hip or cool or suave. And when Jesus was funny, it stung. We need less clowns in the latest apparel or the best suits in the pulpit. Less dynamic communicators and more men who do not care about appearances but carry that ancient flavor that first echoed from the shores of Galilee and the banks of the River Jordan. In short, we need less innovation and more faithfulness boring as it may be. And so he comes to the central command. After he's told us who he's talking to, he's told us why we need to listen to him. Then he tells us what to do. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. We need to understand the meaning of shepherd. And this is why we spent all of last week, all of our time in the preaching to underscore, highlight, Bring out the meaning, the rich biblical meaning of this word. So much is supposed to come to your mind when this word is used. Most of us, I don't think, have ever tended sheep. Uh, but most everyone in the first century would have done so or known someone who did. So we need to rely on the biblical narrative and theology to inform our understanding of this term and what it means, all the extent of it, if you were not here or you missed the sermon, go back and listen to it. We won't revisit all of that. But in summary of a whole message, the contrast is keen in the history of Israel between those who were good shepherds and those who were bad shepherds, all leading in this climactic way to the coming of the good shepherd, Jesus himself. I could word this statement another way then, since the point is the coming of Jesus as the shepherd exemplar, the one that we all look to as our example. Here's what Peter is saying. Be towards the flock of God in the same way that Jesus is towards the flock of God. Do the kinds of things that Jesus does for the flock. Give the things that Jesus gives to the flock. Be filled with the same things that Jesus is filled with towards the flock. Work hard for the flock of God even as Jesus works round the clock for the health and security and thriving of His flock by guarding them and loving him, them. It's interesting to note He says God's flock. It's almost common parlance among Pastors in various circles of ministry to say, My church. And I get that. It's not necessarily a possessive sense, but I belong to them. I'm under their authority if that's what is meant. But people even talk about my ministry, my pulpit. It's God's flock. It's not your church, it's not your ministry. We have a stewardship. Especially you young people, you must get stewardship. I know that's a long word, but it will change your life to really understand what this means. Everything you have is on loan. And you are entrusted, even with the very breath you breathe, to use it for God's glory because you are not in possession of, you do not own anything. You are a steward. In the same way that the stewards of Gondor, I have to use this analogy, it fits too perfectly, I'm sorry. Isildur's heir was lost. The line was destroyed. And so Gondor, this kingdom in Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, set up a throne beside the throne. No one would dare ascend that throne of the true king of Gondor because there was no king. And so on this little Smaller, less glorious seat there would sit the stewards of Gondor. Do you have that attitude towards the stuff in your life? Ministers ought not have any throne, but the attitude is, I am not in charge. This is a stewardship. Entitlement to ministry and entitlement in ministry has to die. There are no rights. There is gift. And he says, among you again, right? So he says, I exhort the elders among you. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So among and among. It's equal level. There is equality between the people and the shepherds in terms of essence, though there is a special set of responsibilities that the shepherds have. Shepherd the flock of God. I want to, as I said earlier, play my part in the mechanism of God ordaining and creating through His Word. So I want to issue a summons. Though I am not an eyewitness of the sufferings of Christ, I will likewise, as a fellow elder with the apostles and a preacher of the gospel and as a servant of Jesus Christ, exhort men yes, even the young men in this room. Why not you? Why not? This is what Paul says to Timothy. 2 Timothy 2, 20-21. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel For honorable use. Set apart as holy. Useful to the master of the house. Ready for every good work. Are you in the pattern of purifying yourself and consecrating yourself so that you would become more useful to the master of the house? It's not an issue of calling or even gifting. It is a matter of desire, character, purity, and will. You might be waiting around for the call of God, or maybe the reason you have not jumped to it yet in your life is because you've never felt called. That's not a biblical idea at all. But maybe as we look at the summons of Peter for biblical shepherds, maybe you might sense the call to arms from your great senior pastor Jesus today. When Jesus says, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest, he's not talking about missionaries there. It's been absconded by the missionary community, but he's mainly talking about shepherds. Maybe our ratio here is okay, as we have 65 covenant members, but I tell you, we're testing the upper limits of what's healthy. Seriously. But there are millions of Christians millions who have no meaningful access to a biblically qualified shepherd. That's the real pandemic. And to the women in this room, I want to just say that I wouldn't be able to do this without my lovely wife, Beth. Um, Things would have run off the rails multiple times were it not for her. To the women in this room, this is a shared ministry, and there is devastation in the wake of ministers who did not see it that way. And whether your husband aspires to the office of shepherding or not, you are commissioned by the Lord to help him become a better man. So husbands, listen to your wives. So we've seen the central command, shepherd the flock of God, and now we come to one major expression exercising oversight, exercising oversight is one word in Greek. Uh, This is not the only way that an elder is to shepherd. So understand what I'm saying here in saying this is one major expression that is not, this is not the only expression of shepherding care. There are many, many other things that the Bible says that a godly shepherd should do. So why does Peter focus on this one? Does he just pick one out of the hat at random? I think the reason he selects oversight is that this is one area where many, many pastors or elders get it wrong. There might be a lot of preaching and teaching, but not enough oversight. Some sheep want a glorified Sunday school teacher with the label of pastor. Maybe there's a lot of oversight, but it's the wrong kind of oversight. And we'll see that detailed and unfolded in the do's and don'ts next week. Maybe there's a lot of love and kindness and relationship, but no leadership. There's this really scary word out there called change. And sheep generally don't like it. There's a risk inherent within leading. A lot of people will like you if you never try to head into a particular direction therefore if pastors or elders can get this one area right it will take care of so many other things other things again upstream significance it's similar to what paul says to titus in chapter 2 verse 6 so he gives a long exhortation to women and younger women older women and then he says this one statement to the young men Urge the young men to be self-controlled. And that's all he says. Young men, if you can figure that out, it will lead to a harvest of righteousness in so many other areas. So with elders, with shepherds, properly, biblically exercising oversight is that upstream significance. So what is oversight? We need to define it. It is the Greek word episkopo. Episcopal, oh, sorry, not that it mattered to you. Strict definition is to look upon, to inspect, to oversee, look after, care for. The only other place in the New Testament where this exact form is used is actually from Hebrews, Hebrews 12, 13. He says, see to it, it's the same word, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So, elders, biblical shepherds, are supposed to have a see-to-it mentality. Elders should not be the one who make the problems, rather they take problems as their own responsibility, making it their problem, as it were. They see messes and issues and people being mistreated or things that need to happen Things that are happening that are spiritually or literally unsafe, and they do something about it. It's ownership of problems that you did not start. What it is not is this. It is not mere management. It is not mere planning. It is not mere administration. It is not mere authority. And so, so many in the history of the church have desired authority and influence without a desire to lift a finger in the I'll see to it myself mentality. It is not mere leadership. You remember the story? You know where I'm going. Matthew 20. The mother of James and John come to Jesus, Lord, let my sons sit on your right hand and your left. Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink of the cup and partake of this baptism? They say, yes, we're able. And he says, you will, but to sit at my left and to sit at my right is not mine to give. And then the 10 hear about this request. James and John are trying to get an inside path to influence in Jesus' kingdom. And then the ten hear about it, and they're probably upset because they didn't think about that first. Calling dibs. And we pick it up in verse 25. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. So there's a kind of a swagger. A, an, an entitlement to authority that is characteristic of pagan leaders. And their great ones exercise authority over them, just meting out dictatorial statements, do this, don't do that. It shall not be so among you. Maybe this among you phraseology is why Peter used among you in his letter. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, literally slave. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the son of man, that great son of man prophesied in Daniel, who would crush the nations with a rod of iron. The son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So don't you see the point? This idea of oversight is really just alluding back to the behavior of the Son of Man, of the Good Shepherd. It's what Jesus did. We'll get to that more in a minute. Why is this important in the life of the church? Why is it important that we have people exercising oversight in a biblical way for the church? It's important for, number one, overall direction. There's a see-to-it attitude regarding the overall direction of a church. What are we seeking? Not just what we individually are seeking in our own lives, but what are we as a church seeking? And is it honoring to the Lord? How can we as a whole become more faithful? How can we as a whole better care for our members? How can we inspire and fan into flame more obedience? How can we make better use of everyone's gifts? How can we infuse more of the word of God in everything we do? How can we make prayer more central in everything we do? How can we hold our members, all of them, accountable to the promises of membership? How can we address distractions and logistical issues during our services? How can we empower ministers and deacons to do their ministry? How can we admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all? And how in the world can we have the wisdom to discern the difference? How can we do all this without making us the point? And how can we do this without falling into the many, many traps that exist? Many more questions like these. That's the overall direction, the oversight that shepherds are supposed to exercise or to answer and apply the answer to those types of questions. But it's not just overall direction. I said last week that the elder-to-sheep relationship, the shepherd-to-sheep relationship is important in the purposes of God. So it's not just leading the church, even in those biblical ways. It's personal as well. Again, you need a shepherd in your life whose name is not Jesus, who is flawed and sinful, unlike Jesus, to show in his example the outline of the ministry of Jesus to you. And I'm not talking about telling you whether or not you should do X, Y, or Z, like get a vaccine or wear a mask. I'll leave that between you and the Lord. But maybe you should be less rude. Maybe you should be less selfish. Maybe you should be more kind. Maybe you should be more patient. Maybe there's insight into your life where your life does not line up with the fruit of the Spirit and someone needs to say something. Who's going to say that to you? Hopefully, your spouse, your brothers and sisters. But God has ordained that the third prong of providing the sufficient influence... And word of exhortation in your life is a godly shepherd. And it is so, so hard. I try to do the majority of that work from up here. But it's awkward and it's difficult to get down in the muck in a one-on-one exhortation as a shepherd. And if you play hard to get, it makes it even harder. The first time I realized how influential one word of exhortation from a shepherd could be is when I received it from my youth minister. Didn't carry the title of pastor, but he was my shepherd. And people were advising me in a particular way. My parents were advising me in a particular way. And I wasn't really listening to them until my shepherd said, you should probably listen. And that changed the course of my life. This is why the shepherd-to-congregant relationship is so important and there has to be relationship. And this is why the megachurch, for all of its benefits and efficiencies, simply can't work most times. There's no meaningful access to biblically qualified shepherds. They try to outsource it to growth group leaders. Honest question. Are you opening yourself up enough in enough context to take advantage of this gift that God has given you. There is a whole ministry philosophy out there and it sells like crazy built around the idea of pastors never having to do this. And people will sign up and go to those churches and they're in this area. Because we don't want that. We don't want to open up the hood and have someone shine the light in there and say, hey, it looks like you've got this issue. But I have no idea how else I'm supposed to live in light of Hebrews thirteen seventeen without some reciprocity, without some back and forth relationally. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account, meaning on the last day. Our charge is from the Apostle himself, is to present everyone mature in Christ. That's my goal towards you. People ask me sometimes, what's your five-year plan or ten-year plan? I have no idea when it comes to all of us together and things like property and building. God will do what he he will do. But I've said this before, I know what my plan is for you ten billion years from now. I want you to be more mature in Christ and for your reward to be greater on the last day than it would be now if the Lord were to take you tonight. So, the people of God then need shepherds who will be shepherds, need sheep among them, rather, who will be shepherds to stand up and do this sacred work. It can't be just you and Jesus, that's not his design. There are so many hindrances to doing this hard work of soul care, of oversight. And one of the main hindrances, one of the main problems is the wisdom of this world that pervades ministry philosophy and ideas of how to do things. Too many people trying to be too innovative and efficient. It has to be men who want to do this in this way that Peter says not according to the wisdom of this world. and We will see next week what this wisdom of the world is and how it devastates the flock of God. And we'll see the wisdom of God in contrast to it. But I want to end with an exhortation for you to see your great overseer. You can look at this back in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25. I'll start in verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls, pastor and elder. Another way to translate that of your souls. Jesus is the great overseer. This I'll do it myself or the see to it mentality that we've been talking about. Who does that sound like making other people's problems his own? This is obviously pointing us to the behavior of the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate example of this see to it attitude. The gospel is essentially that. As we just read, we were enemies. We were following the devil. We had sold our soul to the path of the flesh and had given ourselves into all of that of our own will and were not interested in God. We were rather enemies of God. It was our mess. And Jesus decided in his great love and mercy to make our mess his problem. And he came leaving all the comforts and privileges that were rightly His to come to this spinning ball of mud in the Milky Way, taking on flesh, being born into a trough, dying, spilling His blood for His sheep, making our mess His problem. We will see this more next week, but In the three contrasts that Peter gives us, we can see the behavior of Jesus underscored. Not under compulsion, but willingly. No one forced Jesus to come and make our sin his problem. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life. And to give and to give and to give and to give and to give. Never be bashful in asking him for anything, as long as it's biblical. He is your shepherd, and he is glorified in giving you what you need. His gain is you, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. He is not harsh. He is not rough and tumble and chest out looking to throw a punch at any time. He is humble and lowly and gentle, and I quote it all the time, but it fits too well here to pass over. You must come to him. I hope in seeing the heart of Jesus as your great shepherd, the one who sees to it, the great overseer, it is on the basis of his heart to see to your good that he appeals you to to you to come to him. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus who made Our mess is problem. Father, raise up men. Even though they may be seven, eight, nine years old right now, use these words to plant a seed in their heart that they might stand and serve the flock and be like Jesus towards the people of God, making others messes their problems shepherding, knowing that in Christ we have great reward. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.